Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. I'm joined with my friend and colleague, Dr. John Mandrola. He's a electrophysiologist based in Louisville, Kentucky, a practicing cardiologist, and you will know him from the podcast This Week in Cardiology. John, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. Good to see you, Vinay. It's good to be back again. We're both sipping wine. It's an evening time here in Sunday, and you're sipping a white wine from Portugal. I'm sw- I'm sipping uh, I'm sipping a Spanish wine. It's nice to uh, it's nice to get some of the old world wines over here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I like to I like to drink a wine from the regions that I visited, and this this white from Portugal is beautiful. So, well, don't you believe the new study that shows that any alcohol consumption is bad for your health, John? How come you're not uh, teetotaling? What's going on? Oh, uh, then I, you know, I mean, it's all about it's all about risk. If if I wanted to live long, I would ride my bike trainer. I wouldn't take my I wouldn't take my uh, Canyon Arrow Road out for a ride in the, uh, out on the road. So yes. So you'd ride your trainer in your house with your helmet on, and you'd only drive thirty-five <laughs> miles an hour. I mean, it is safer. It's safer. And I other- have had patients fall off trainers, so it's not impossible. You're right. You have to wear a harness on your trainer, of course. But you know, it's an interesting thing about alcohol, which is that I was just talking about it with some colleagues in epidemiology. I was giving a talk to my department on Friday, and um, I was just pointing out that it's the only type of research where you lump, you know a fine Italian Barolo with Mad Dog 2020, and they both count as one drink. And it's so ridiculous to think that those are equivalent substances. So, you know, the whole literature is just garbage. But let's set that aside. Today, we got a couple of interesting things to talk about. First, we're going to talk about a little topic called, when can you not do a randomized trial? When can you do a randomized trial? Are they impossible to do? And John's going to give us some examples from cardiology. I'm going to talk about some things I've been saying about COVID-19 that got uh, all the right people irritated. I mean, if you get the person on the internet who's been wrong about every COVID-19 policy irritated at you, it tells you you're right, okay? It tells you you're right. And then, then we're going to talk about testing and just the general idea in medicine that you should only do a test if you can use the information to make a better decision. And if you can't, you shouldn't test. So we'll talk about that. So John, why don't you kick it off with these cardiology studies? You have two new studies that were once thought impossible. They've been done. Let's take a look. All right. So I just got back from the uh, ESC meeting, European Society of Cardiology meeting in Amsterdam. And there was, it was surprising. There were a lot of great trials at this meeting. Uh, There's two that I want to speak to because of your you know, you're you're out there talking about we need to study things in randomized controlled trial fashion because this is the way to know things in medicine. But a lot of the critics say that you can't study some things. It's just impossible. So I, I just want to give two examples of things that you would think on paper are pretty impossible to study. Right. And one of them is uh the, called the ECLS shock trial. This is a, a study looking at patients who have cardiogenic shock, and that's jargon for severe heart pump failure because of a heart attack. Coronary artery gets blocked, the heart just fails, and you know my colleagues open these arteries, but in the in those hours afterwards, the heart is just failing, not pumping enough blood, and the mortality rate from cardiogenic shock is super super high. And so people have these mechanical assist devices where, you know, you either put a device in the heart or you put a balloon pump in or, you know, there's the most aggressive one is is 
VA ECMO, which is really taking blood out of the body, giving an oxygen or putting back in. It's really almost like a heart lung machine. And so doctors choose to use this VA ECMO to save patients from cardiogenic shock. And if you, if a patient's dying in front of you and you don't put them on this ECMO, um, they'll die. And so, but actually mechanical circulatory support for, for shock after a heart attack has not, things haven't really proven to work. And people say, well, you can't study this, but actually this German team from Leipzig actually did study 200 patients got VA ECMO, 200 patients randomized therapy, and lo and behold, not there was no difference in mortality. But there's two to you know two x greater risk of complications, uh, both bleeding complications and vascular complications. Studies published in New England Journal of Medicine presented as a hotline trial at, at ESC and. Here's a topic where you didn't think you could randomize patients who were dying, you did, and you found out that we're actually harming people with something that we thought was helping people. And so that's oh, the let's, first example. Let's let's talk about this a little bit. So, okay, I come in with a heart attack, God forbid, and I'm in cardiogenic shock. So that's heart attack plus my heart is so strangled of oxygen, it's not even pumping well enough, and my blood pressure is low, and I'm probably not perfusing my capillaries, and my body is literally dying because my ticker is not squeezing. And in this situation, we've done a lot of things. When I was a, a resident, we used to put the, in, the uh, aortic balloon pump and it actually is a kind of a, a long tube, uh, a, a balloon that inflates and deflates very rapidly. And it's supposed to deflate during systole to suck that blood out of that, that heart and inflate in diastole to create the perfusion back into the coronaries. And lo and behold, people thought it was a parachute. It was a miracle. It was a game changer. And after all, these people would be dead if you didn't do it. That was the mantra. So it's silly not to do it. It makes perfect logical sense. I mean, do you not understand physiology, John? But then they did a randomized study, IABP shock, and my understanding is it's a negative study. Mm -hmm. And it failed to improve outcomes from this very elegant and thoughtful device. Now, fast forward. Now we're talking about something that's even more invasive, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO, really, right? Um, right. This, this is, this is the, the most powerful thing you have. You literally take the blood out of someone's body, you oxygenate it, and put it back into their body. And so if your heart's failing, presumably this is the thing that's going to save you. And I remember in my career, we've done it a lot for COVID patients. We did it for pregnant women with flu back in the day. And here they're doing it routinely for acute MI and cardiogenic shock. And one thing I want to point out to you, John, well, you've already known it, I'm sure, is that the death rate is 47 and 49% in the two arms. In other words, 50% of these people are going to die. And in cardiology, 50% death rate is what you all would call high. Right. And in oncology, it's, you know, often par for the course. But, you know, in cardiology, it's high, right? You know, so different fields have different, you know, tolerance of death. But even in oncology, a 50% death rate in, what, 30 days is actually quite high. Even pancreas cancer doesn't come close to that, you know? So this is, this is the most morbid situation, and you have literally the most bioplausible tool in your tool bag. It would be unethical to do a randomized study. Of course, it has to work. Oh, whoops, they did one, and it doesn't work. It's costly, it's harmful, it's detrimental, and you're a fool to do it. That's what you're telling me, John. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just so... I don't, I don't deal with cardiogenic shock. I'm an EP doctor, deal with arrhythmias, but it's just so shocking to me that, that it just 
something that actually can save a patient doesn't work. And uh, and it's just had we not done had we had we not done this this trial, um, and we we would just still be doing this procedure and and harming people. And you know there are people there were there was a discussion at ESC about picking the right patient. And, you know, didn't pick the right patients. But, you know, look, this is 200 patients in each arm, multi-center, randomized, and not a not not even close to a signal. So not a lick just, of difference. Yeah. 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 But so one, more, one more point on this, John. This is this is a common fallacy in medicine that's bigger than this, which is people think that if the disease state is dire, and I think we'll all agree a 50% death rate in 30 days is dire. That's not good. Okay. But they say if the disease state is dire and the intervention makes sense, you cannot do a randomized study. And what this study shows is that one, yes, you can do it. Two, you ought to do it because three, it doesn't always go the way you want. And so simply having a high baseline risk of death does not mean you can't do a randomized study. In fact, it's often indicated. And these people are the ones who they benefit the most from data because, you know, we're wasting so much money. How much money does this thing cost? It's like a quarter, isn't it a quarter million dollars? I mean, it's not cheap to run that damn machine. Yeah, it's super expensive, but also, you know, I mean, uh, peripheral vascular complications, almost three times greater bleeding, almost, you know, greater than two times greater. So it's actually harmful that that something we something that has makes plausible sense. It's not only, and not only expensive and, and not helpful, but harmful. Uh, it's, it's very similar to the it's very similar to the you know many well it's similar to many stories in medicine that were undone by randomized controlled trials yeah and i think that's the takeaway uh, that something that's super plausible in a very dire situation doesn't always work okay let's go to the second example one. yeah the second one's even i think it's even better john i think it's the best one i i think it's this is great this is a great story and i actually got to meet the the first author who's a phd student and the senior author so this is a study. Imagine this, Vinay. Imagine this. This is um, these are older, uh, greater than eighty years old, older, frail adults who you know frailty is measured by whatever frailty score. It's not important, but just think of a homebound uh, person who doesn't get out of the house much, walks with a walker, um, and these patients have AFib and they're doing very well on uh, vitamin K antagonists. Now VKAs. In Europe, um, they they call warfarin. Warfarin is one of the VKAs, vitamin K antagonists. But for, in the U.S., we, we we just say warfarin. And this is the one where you measure the INRs and you keep it in range. And so these these uh, older, frailer adults are doing fine uh, on these VKAs. On Coumadin, yeah. On Coumadin, warfarin, warfarin-like drugs. Okay, they're doing fine. <clears throat> but there, there's this idea that we should be switching these patients to the direct acting oral anticoagulants like apixaban or rivaroxaban. And so people recognize that I don't like brand names, but Aloquist and Xarelto. So people think that we should be switching these patients to these drugs. And the reason they think this is because when you compare all the warfarin versus DOAC trials, it the, the DOAC trials look to be better for stroke prevention and there's a <clears throat> there's a trend towards less bleeding, um, and so and they're easier, right? They're more convenient. You don't have to check them. So uh, people are switching these older patients. And the senior author, <clears throat> this uh, uh, Dutch general practitioner academic Gert Jan Geersing, 
he was frustrated because he said, these are different patients than those in those trials. These are 83 year old homebound frail adults. That doesn't necessarily, these patients, that doesn't apply. And so he was frustrated that people were doing this. He said, you have no data. And he did not try and convince his colleagues by uh, eminence. He did not try and convince his colleagues with observational data. He didn't do a he didn't do a uh, you know database study. He said we're going to do a randomized controlled trial, multiple centers in the Netherlands, and they took these homebound elderly patients and they were able to randomize them to just one group was stay on the VKAs, just no change, and the other group switch, and they were very careful about switching. And don't you know that they had to terminate the trial early? They they powered the trial for benefit because they felt like DOEX, everybody felt DOEX would be beneficial. And the first interim look, they found like a 69% higher rate of bleeding in the switching arm. So the the drug that people thought was beneficial was actually not not only not beneficial, it was harmful. And so to me, this was, it's called the Frail AF study. It's published in circulation. We'll put up a link to it. But to me, this was, I called it the most important study from the ESC because, you know, okay, it deals with one group of patients, frail elderly patients. But I think the message is that when we look at clinical trials done in the best patients, you talk about it in oncology, when you look at the best patients, ambulatory, younger, not too much comorbidity, it's very difficult to apply that data to patients who are more vulnerable and older or different in any way. And so I think it speaks to the translation of evidence from clinical trials to um, the patients in front of us. And it points to the fact that you can do randomized controlled trials. These are homebound, frail, elderly patients. And they did a they did a multicenter randomized controlled trial. I thought it was really cool. Okay, this is probably the most important study I've seen in AFib in a long time, and, I, and I'll unpack it for you a little bit because I think this is super provocative. First, I think, you know, I was actually in training when we developed the, you know, the direct oral anticoagulants, dibigatran, ribaroxaban, apixaban, etc. And the beauty of these is it's an oral drug that, quote-unquote, does not require monitoring. Well, oh, maybe not, actually. There's some internal data that came out from Dibigatran that suggested you would get actually better sort of performance if you did monitoring. But of course, nobody in Boehringer wanted to do that because that would take away the marketing gimmick that unlike Coumadin, you don't have to stick yourself for these drugs. But to this day, there are many patients in whom we do do some monitoring, particularly those in whom have had breakthrough clot. All right. Now, when they ran all those original randomized control trials, they were typically non-inferiority studies in atrial fibrillation against Coumadin. And they selected, as you put it, the best of the best, you know, the Olympians who happen to have AFib, you know, not the typical person with AFib, but like the most exemplary person with AFib. And they compared DOAC, is it non-inferior, to Coumadin. And as you point out, that when you pool those studies, maybe, if anything, it's actually a little bit better. But there's some problems with those studies. One thing I always pointed to was the in-target INR time on the control arm in some trials was like 65%. Now, people say, that's really good. Most of our patients don't get to 65% in target INR. But I say, well, most of your patients wouldn't be eligible for this study. These are the Olympians. The people, if anything, these patients should have in target INR time of 85%. What the fuck is going on? You remember one called Rocket AF, which was almost retracted by New England Journal because they used a proprietary INR device 
and what's this guy's name, Manish Patel or whatever, they wrote some kind of dubious rebuttal in the New England Journal, but they used a proprietary device to, to give the Coumadin that was recalled by FDA, and so thus all the Coumadin measurements are, are suspect. This is in Rivaroxaban's Rocket AF, and yet they claim in reanalysis all's hunky-dory, so there's some questions there. Now, this is an independent study. It's not run by the manufacturer, and so that's a beauty of this study. And what they're doing is they're taking people who are like, look, I've been doing quite comfortably on Coumadin. Should I switch to a direct oral anticoagulant, which is what in the United States, to be honest, we, are, we did this 10 years ago. We took all these people who were just fine on Coumadin. You know, they were living in their INR zone, easy to take care of. You know, they'd have a kale salad once a week. And, you know, they, they, the problem isn't eating uh, leafy greens. The problem is varying your leafy green intake. You know, if you're stable leafy greens, that's all fine with, you know, vitamin K antagonists. They took these people and they randomized them to stick with what they're doing or switch. And they showed switching to the DOAC is harmful. It's not just, it's not non-inferior. It is harmful. And that really, John, this contradicts a lot of American practice for 10 years. And it just points out these industry studies were not asking the same question as these non-conflicted investigators. This is a, this is a reversal of sorts. And it's a medical reversal for a lot of what we did 10 years ago when DOACs came out. Yeah, I a couple. I, I agree. I agree. Just a couple of points of the the bigotran. It's true. Monitoring might be helpful for the bigotran because it's a pro drug, and and some of the some of the enzymes that uh, metabolize that drug are, are are genetically determined, and so that may be a special case. But the point is, the yeah. the, the point is, is that um, yes, this was the hazard ratio was one point six nine higher rate of bleeding at the first interim analysis. So this was clearly harmful. And I think the message in, in my field, and I know you talk about it in oncology, I can only speak to cardiology, but so much of what we do uh, that's evidence-based in heart failure, in stroke prevention, um, in, in coronary disease, the trials are done in these really good patients, patients that have minimal multimorbidity, younger, sometimes sometimes trials are like 30, 30 years old, right? The beta blocker trials. And we apply them to these frail 85-year-old patients who come to your office with a walker with tennis balls on them and a creatinine of two. And it just, they're just different patients. And I think we, we, we have to be super careful with translating that kind of evidence. And 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 I think the message from Frail AF is, you know, rather than assume that the benefits in the trials apply to the patients, if their patients are substantially different, then these sorts of trials can be done. It was funded by mostly by the Dutch government, um, and uh, and really, I, I get the sense that it was really required champions of 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 this to to make this work. And I think we we need more champions of of randomization. I think in medicine. Whenever somebody tells me that you can't do a randomized trial of insert your favorite practice, I think to myself, they're stupid. And they're stupid in one of two ways. Okay, one of two ways. One is they're ignorant to medical history. If they knew medical history a little bit better, they would know that the smartest people for century, for a, at least maybe half a century, century, have said you should not, cannot, could not, would not do a randomized trial of this because it's got to work only to have a randomized trial blow up in their face and not work. That's true for CAST. That's true for hormone replacement therapy. That's true for Courage. That's true for Orbita. That's true for the examples you just gave. So 
what am I to think if you are so arrogant that you think you're smarter than all those cardiologists in 1985 who thought flecainide was a, a win? You're smarter than all those internists in 1993 who thought hormone replacement therapy was good. And that included our friend Adam, because he writes about it very poignantly in our book, Medical Reversal, in the, in the um, introduction, that he was one of those people who got caught up in it, but he was grateful for randomized evidence. And he was never one to say you shouldn't do the randomized study. He was always one to say you should do it. So, okay, so you're ignorant of history because you think you know better. You know better, and your pathophysiology is finally so good, you don't need randomization. The second thing I think, the reason I call them stupid, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, I don't think they're stupid, but they lack creativity. Okay, so recently I got in an argument over lunch, and this will tie it over to, you know, to, to what I was talking about. I've been a big proponent that we need randomized trials of the fall COVID booster, and we need randomized trials of the annual flu shot. And at lunch in epidemiology, there's a faculty member who's actually a good friend of mine, senior guy, who thinks that it would be ridiculous to do a randomized trial of the flu shot because by the time you get the results, the flu season is over. And I said, let's get creative, okay? Here's how I'd be creative. Each year, we have to choose you know, how are we going to build the flu vaccine? And it's always a guess. Now, we could have two algorithms and make a flu shot A and a flu shot B. Algorithm A makes a guess in a certain way, picks certain, you know, H and N types, three strains. Al algorithm B picks it in a different way. And if you run that season over season, you could say, well, in the long run, algorithm B is better. So you can do a randomized trial of two different algorithms of choosing what strains of flu to put in the flu shot. Now, why stop at two? It could be six arms. It could be seven arms. You could do randomized trials of the rollout. You could do randomized trials of challenge trials where you challenge people with the flu strain. You could do randomized trials in the Southern Hemisphere for the Northern winter and vice versa. You can do randomized trials that are registry-based. You can do continually enrolling randomized trials. Let's talk about COVID boosters. You could do randomized trials of giving nursing home patients boosters every four months or three months or two months. You know, what's the optimal dosing? Why is it one a year? Why is it not every few months? You could do randomized trials of, of different, um, of people who've had COVID and people who haven't had COVID and all sorts of things. And so to me, you're just not being creative. Like you're just saying, oh no, we can't do any randomized studies. But the reason we do randomized studies is that it, it is actually a true causal estimate of the, in, of the intervention and they don't always go the way you want. And so to me, it just shows either an ignorance of medical history or a lack of creativity if you tell me we can never do any randomized trials of flu shots or boosters. Well, what did you say to Yeah. I was wondering how you would how you would how you would set up a a a, a booster randomized trial and I, I I think you answered that, but I mean what would you say to people? I hear this all the time. They're like, "John, you know, you can answer questions. You can answer questions with observational studies, and they always cite smoking. We know smoking caused lung cancer, and there was never a randomized controlled trial. We did this with we did this with causal inference from observational studies, and why why can't we do that with this sort of thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm asking, really, no, 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 educate it's, it's, it's a great question. So, okay, so let me let me just point out something. Um, let's imagine a spectrum of risk. On one end, the worst thing you can do to somebody. On the other end, the best thing you could do to somebody. The worst thing you could do to somebody is shoot them in the head. I mean, I think that's not good. Okay. Now, is there a randomized study that shows shooting somebody in the head is bad for them? And the answer is no, because the effect size is nearly, you know, 95% mortality. And the time to death is 10 minutes. And so the effect is visible to the naked eye. Okay. And it's a harm. What about smoking? 
you know, the Bradford Hill studies show smoking's linked to lung cancer has odds ratio of 20. In other words, if you smoke, you're, you know, 19-fold more likely to get lung cancer than if you didn't smoke. That is a huge risk. And that risk is so big that I think many people are comfortable using risk factor epidemiology to say that that's a real risk and we can advise people against smoking. But also, the advice against smoking does vary. I mean, I'm much more likely to tell a 16-year-old, say, hey, don't smoke, buddy, if I see you smoking cigarettes. But if I have an 88-year-old who already has lung cancer, I'm not going to tell him to stop smoking. And I know many of my colleagues would say, yes, you should counsel them. I say, you're crazy. He's 88. He already has lung cancer. You're out of your goddamn mind if you want to take him cigarettes away. Let him enjoy it. And what does it matter? His life expectancy, you know, it's not, that's not going to be the dictating. So, okay, so counseling against smoking is also not universal. But let's talk about where we do randomized studies. We don't randomize people to putative harms. We don't randomize you to drinking benzene or inhaling asbestos. We use risk factor epidemiology for putative harms, things we think are harmful. We don't randomize you to get shot in the face. We use, that's, you don't even use epidemiology. You just use your eyes and ears to know that that's bad. Now let's talk about the benefit side. On the benefit side, for real parachutes, we don't do randomized studies. I mean, I think if you have fulminant hepatic failure, there is no randomized study for liver transplantation, but yet you can see when you transplant the liver, they're not going to die and they were about to die. So I think there are some things in medicine that we don't do randomized studies. But all of the things we're talking about are things you think benefit somebody. So they're putative benefit, like a booster, like a flu shot, like ECMO, like um, DOAC. You think it'll benefit the person to switch or to do it. They, it doesn't have an effect size of 100% because we know people go on ECMO and they die anyway. Okay, and in fact, in, in that randomized study, they show they died at exactly the same rate, by the way. 50% of them will be dead either ECMO, no ECMO. So anything that's of a putative benefit with a modest to marginal effect size is ripe for randomization. So smoking, you wouldn't randomize someone to smoking because that's a putative harm of a large effect size. Um, okay, but you could do a randomized trial of smoking cessation. And actually, I've said before, there is a colleague of mine who thinks that you should counsel people who already have terminal lung cancer to quit smoking. I say, you want me to waste my breath on somebody who already has terminal lung cancer to quit smoking? Do a randomized study and show that smoking cessation counseling improves outcomes. And I promise you, it's going to be null. But if you want to do, you know, um, you know, but if you want to claim that the fall booster should be given to a 20-year-old, yeah, you do need a randomized study because it's a putative benefit and the effect size has got to be really small at best. The UK government puts the effect size in one in two million. They actually have a report out. That's their speculation what it is. So one I in guess, two million for severe disease? I think it's actually death, severe disease or death. Um, but it's entirely pulled out of their ass because nobody has data for that. Now, what about observational studies? Observational studies are great at finding odds ratios of 20. Observational studies are great for mesothelioma and asbestos. Easy. That's, you don't get, me you don't get mesothelioma unless you've been huffing, you know, breathed asbestos. Okay. The link is so, you know, odds ratio is like 30. Um, but are, are these studies good for odds ratio of 1.00005? No, they're not good at all. And when we're talking about boosting young people, we're talking about very, very small effect sizes. And they're too small to be detected by observational studies. Yes. Too small to be detected by observational studies reliably and separated from bias. So for instance, when it comes to boosters, you know, we have that, that letter in New England Journal called the healthy vaccinee effect, 
where we essentially show that the entire effect from the Israeli program that people who get boosters do better than people who don't can be explained by the fact that they're giving boosters to healthier people. And they're much less likely to die for any reason. And you remember Don Redelmeyer's paper, people who get vaccines are less likely to be in car accidents. The only reason that could be possible is if it's different people, because obviously a vaccine doesn't stop you from, you know, getting in a car accident. Are you crazy? So we know different people get this. There is a bias here, confounding by indication. You just can't sort that out with observational studies. Now, what would you say to people? I, I'm kind of playing the. I, I'm going to play the person play who. I'm going to play the person who pushes you. What would you say to people who say, "Okay, uh, there's not much risk." There, there. I think people will now agree that there's a myocarditis risk, but they'll say the myocarditis risk is extremely small. That. It is uh, mostly self-limited, and it's it's really not not significant, and it shouldn't factor into it. I, I have my feelings about uh, uh, infrequent but potentially severe complications. But how would you how would you address the 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 people who argue that argue with you that it, it, the risks of this thing are so small that it's not a factor? Well, for like a twenty-two-year-old healthy man. I would say that it's easy to prove mathematically that dose two, three, and four are net harmful. That's easy. Because even one in 10,000 myocarditis is far bigger than any risk you ever have from COVID after the first dose. And if you already had COVID to get a dose of this, it's just totally crazy because you're 22. You have no, you have virtually the lowest risk of COVID imaginable. You've already had COVID and recovered. And now someone's giving you a booster with real risk of myocarditis. And what's the gain? You think you're going to lower your risk of getting COVID a second time? Where's the evidence for that? Okay. So that's my first part. But the second thing is I just met a woman. She must be in her forties. Um, I hope that's true. Uh, and she was saying that, look, I don't want to get another booster because I've already had COVID and the COVID shot, you know, it put me on my ass for a day. And I think there's so many people who will say, yeah, it's not so bad, but it put me on my ass for a day. You know, I was in bed for a day or I just wasn't myself for a day. Well, what I want to say is add up all those days of year of days of life lost because you're on your ass and compare it against days of life gained. And the only way to do that is randomization. And I think it's probably actually detrimental for most healthy people. That's not just my opinion. The UK government is not advising boosters under 65. Well, they're not paying for boosters under 65. And Australia is not advising boosters for under 65. But our government is advising boosters for six months and up. Now, are the people in our government so much smarter than the UK? Do we have data that they don't have? Or are we more corrupt? I mean, that's you know, it's the only answer is that we're more corrupt. Well, Go on. Have, yes. has... And, and again, I'm asking: has, yes. has there been a formal recommendation, or are they are waiting the, or are they waiting the meeting? Uh, they're waiting the meeting, but the uh, the the ink is on the walls, the writing's on the walls, because you've got the deputy uh, commission, the deputy director of CDC, Nirav Shah, who's actually my um, med school classmate. He says he says um, that. Uh, it's going to be down to six months. And you've got Mandy Cohen, the CDC director, saying it's going to go down to six months. And you've got Ashish Jha tweeting it. And you've got the um, that press secretary talking about it at a conference. So no, let me ask you yeah. this. Here's another question for you. Uh, so you travel, I travel, and we go to we go to mostly Europe, and you just see such different practices. And Sometimes I scratch my head and I and I wonder when I when I come back to the U.S. I see it in cardiology practices differ and I just wonder, you know, 
it's almost like Americans don't travel enough or they don't, they, we, we, I mean, we don't, it's like we don't learn from, from our colleagues. And I don't understand why that is. That's a great point. Okay. So my thoughts, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think you can put it in two buckets. When you talk about cancer medicine, um, cardiology, rheumatology, you know, the stock and trade medicine, it's easy to say that in Europe, they're much more judicious. They're more cost conscious. They think about what's best for everybody. That's easy. And why? Because they have single payer healthcare systems. They have rational dollar per quality adjusted life year analyses. You know, they're much more thoughtful about evidence on all these things. And that's why I've always, you know, my books have been more popular in Europe, et cetera. On the COVID-19 issue, I think in addition to all these usual factors, we have one additional factor which is that there is a fraction of people on the political left in the U.S. who have lost their minds. They're absolutely irrational. They want boosters every two days. I mean, if you really had a pol- if you really gave them a booster every month, they would just get it. They would just keep getting boosters, no data. They would keep screaming that long COVID is going to you know, turn your brain into jelly. They will keep saying that kids need to mask. They keep saying that kids do, you know, in fact, Montgomery County mandated and 95 masking kids this week. So in the U.S., we have some zealots zero COVID zealots on the left. They became zealots because they hated Donald Trump and they're not good at thinking. And actually many of them are actually, you know, prominent Twitter folks. I don't want to say good academics because that's not true. Uh, <laughs> so bad. But, but, let they're, me but they're on Twitter. Yeah, go on. Push back, push back. What I find so weird is that before the pandemic, before Donald Trump, I mean, Many of these people were less is more evidence-based medicine people. And it's like, I don't know what happened to rational thinking. Uh, uh, You know, I I just don't understand how um, rational thinking that about evidence and using evidence and less is more before. And now it's, it's, it's just completely gone bonkers. I would say that I totally agree with you. And look, everyone knows I'm no fan of Donald Trump, but what I would say is that if you're perfectly honest, <laughs> I think people do have the Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, he, he makes people deranged. I don't know. He does things that provoke them, and then they get so worked up about it that they turn off their brain and they act like idiots. And I'm like, look, Donald Trump says you shouldn't mask kids. But you know what? You shouldn't mask kids. I mean, it's obvious that you, yes, Donald Trump thinks you shouldn't mask a toddler. But if you have eyes and a brain, you would know that only a moron would think you should because they don't, they're putting it in their mouth and they take it off when they nap. And it's stupid, okay? So just because he says it doesn't mean it's wrong. You have to, he's just a human being. Actually, to be honest, in my opinion, if people treated him like a regular person rather than this sort of boogeyman, he wouldn't be half as powerful as he is. He's powerful, and a lot of people vote for him just because they want to piss these people off who they consider the elites who've held them down. And at some point, you can recognize he does piss them off. He gets under their skin. He bothers them, you know? And part of his appeal, I think, is not the issues. It's just that you want to vote for a guy who's going to piss off the person you're sick of listening to. And it's sad that it happened in medicine. But we all look, you and I both know there's some very distinguished people in medicine who— one of them keeps replying to my tweets, and he says, um, where's the evidence that masks don't work? I simply see no evidence that they do work. And yeah, like, address that question. Yeah, and I was like, well, listen to yourself. Where's the evidence that ivermectin, where's the evidence that prayer doesn't work? Where's the evidence that vitamin C doesn't stop? 
if there's no evidence that it does work in medicine, the convention is to say it doesn't. I mean, what the fuck are you talking about? I could say I can go to my cupboard and mix my spices together, and I'd say I cure your cancer with it, and you're going to say, what the hell are you talking about? Your mixture of cumin and turmeric? The fuck are you talking about? You'll say there's no evidence that that works, and I'll say, well, there's no evidence it doesn't work, is there, John? And we don't have that standard. So how can somebody who's been in medicine so long come at me and say, Oh, where's the randomized study that shows it doesn't work in toddlers? And I was like, well, where's the fucking evidence that it does work in toddlers? Are you out of your fucking mind? And I was like, and also, it's a toddler. Are you so fucking stupid? I mean, this is what I got to say this. I will, and listeners can send the criticism to me. You have to be the stupidest motherfucker to think a 24-month-old child will benefit from a fucking cloth mask. Your brain is so fucking broken. And I have been trying to bite my tongue about these dumb motherfuckers for so long. I, I cannot take them. I, was like, I wrote all these articles as polite as possible. But you really have to be kicked in the head to think that that works. I don't know. And so if you want evidence that it doesn't work, you're so far from common sense i don't know what to tell you and well so I, yeah. you're you're i think the point you're I should, making i should bleep that out i should bleep no that out. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the point the point that you're making you can bleep out whatever you yes. want but All the right. point you're making i yes. think is that is that a lot of these i won't mention names but a lot of these famous tv doctors and a lot of these doctors on the internet they they get they get you know labeled as crazies because they might recommend nine things that make sense, but if they have one thing like eat this raspberry or whatever, people just say everything, they've lost all credibility. But it's very similar here because, I mean, I picked up my grandkids during the pandemic and uh, they're, they're laying there next to each other, breathing on each other without their mask during nap time. And I'm just thinking to myself, and it's the same in our hospital, right? We can We can go to this cafeteria and we can take off the mask to eat. <laughs> Or the doctor's lounge, and everybody's got their mask off, and it's like, what? It 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 just destroys credibility when you come up with things like that. And I don't think many European countries. I think well, I, there's a couple that I visited that don't have those kinds of recommendations, and 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 they have they seem to have better trust in their authorities. Yeah, I mean, come on, I mean, I remember in 2020 that in June, July, and halfway through August, there was no masking of toddlers. The CDC, I think they debuted that policy in like August 2020, and then suddenly they start doing it, which is already crazy. And then people always use analogies like, well, masks are like condoms or whatever. And I was like, well, if you really want to flesh out the analogy, the analogy would be every day you have sex with 100 people, and you know maybe two of them are using a condom. So, and then we're going to measure how many babies are born nine months later or something like that. I mean, it's not going to be doing anything. It's a total wash, even if it did something. And and you know, there's the gap between perfect adherence and real world adherence. Anyway, we right. have to beat the mask to death. But I'm sick of it. But I mean, people are crazy. I don't know what to say. Trump got them crazy. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about medical testing. Yes, that's the final point. Okay. Okay, we have so, to talk about medical testing because. You've been writing, you've been really, really getting people fired up by saying, don't test for COVID. And, um, and then I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm reading that and I'm reading your people saying how awful that is. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, don't we learn in the first month of internship that you don't do tests on people unless it's going to change what you do. And I still I still think I can't come up with an exception to that rule that you shouldn't do a test if it isn't going to change how you act after the test. And I think you can argue 
that testing for COVID is actually a harm. So here's my argument. Look, here's two worlds. One is, you know, your kid looks good. You send him to school. They have a little bit of a runny nose. You send him to school. Now they look really crappy. They feel sick. You keep them home. The moment they feel better, you send them to school. This is called how life has always been. Okay, that's how life has been for hundreds of years. And in fact, the UK government actually advises its citizens that that's how life should be going forward. Now, there's a different school of thought, the alternative. Your kid looks a little crummy, should swab their oropharynx with that little thing and test for COVID. And if it's COVID positive, keep them home for 10 days because they're still infectious even after they feel better, blah, blah, blah. And if you do that, you're going to keep a lot of kids home. But at the end of the year, nine, you know, this, you know, are, are fewer kids going to have COVID? Are fewer kids going to have MISC? Are kids going to live longer or better? I don't know. Nobody has ever proven any of those things are true. And what we do know is that they're all going to get COVID anyway many times over in their life. So to me, my point is this. If you test your kid for COVID, you run the risk of keeping them out of school. School is a huge benefit to them and others. And if you test the kid for COVID, you may prevent the spread, but no one has ever shown that that's true. So isn't the burden on these manufacturers to prove these people who are making millions from the test kits, you've got Harvard faculty quitting their job to join these testing companies. Shouldn't they have to prove that the routine testing of kids improves outcomes? As you say, why send a test if it doesn't change your management? Now, people tell me, well, well, you can keep testing positive and it means you're infective. I actually, I, I urge anyone to show me the data that, that that's true. Now, if you test positive on these tests, you may be more likely to culture virus but somebody show me data that if you test positive on these tests, you're more likely to infect another person. And more importantly, somebody show me data that the routine application of testing means that people are better off down the, down the road. And there is no such data. There's no data for either of those questions. But what are you going to say to people who come back and say, Vinay, 7 million people died of SARS-CoV-2. This is a serious disease. Um, and... You know, and, and we don't for, want people. And, we don't want and, people breathing the crud. I, I don't want you breathing and, your your crud on me. Forty nine percent of people with cardiogenic shock and MI will die. So that's why we got to do the ECMO, John. That's why we got to do the ECMO. It's the same thing. Yes, yes, it's a tragedy that people died of COVID, and yes, cardiogenic shock and MI is bad. But that doesn't mean that ECMO is good, and that doesn't mean that testing a toddler is good. So you, it's the exact. That's a great way to tie it together. Because yes, something can be bad, but it doesn't mean that's good. So you could say cancer is bad. That's why I got to slaughter this goat. But the slaughtering the goat's not going to stop the cancer. You know, and testing By the, the way, top. I love yeah. that example. I love it. Yes, too. I love it's it. perfect. It's perfect. Um, okay, but 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 now there's this other thing that I want to ask you about. Is like one of my grandkids went to the ER and they got a viral swab. There were like eight viruses, <sighs> and fuck? and it ended up costing like a thousand dollars for this viral swab and i thought to myself rhinovirus you know rsv influenza sars cov 2s coronavirus it's not covid what does it matter why would you do that test so fucking stupid it's so stupid i mean maybe you would do that test if you're like i don't know in a bone marrow transplant unit trying to mitigate an epidemic when like a very vulnerable population but in an er for a child we've lost our mind in medicine do a randomized study take healthy kids in an ER and randomize them to that test or no test and then measure spending and all health outcomes 30 days later and you will show that that test is a waste of money and it didn't change a goddamn thing. You know, this is, I don't know what to say. I think that's just stupid test. And look, John, I would also say, um, how many times have you been sick in your life? I've been sick like 300 times in my life. 
and I've only ever swabbed my nose three times, and it was useless all three of those three. I mean, it's a useless, to, useless test. And the other thing people say, oh, it tells you to take Paxlovid. Well, surprise, surprise, there's no data for Paxlovid in vaccinated people. That's a problem. There's no data in, like, young health. Well, there is, isn't there? Didn't, didn't the oh, Epic yeah. SR? It's I negative. Mean, sure. It's negative data. Yeah. It doesn't work. I mean, what journal was it published? Oh, it's published on clinicaltrials.gov silently dropped. There's no journal. There's no publication. That's kind of... That's kind of strange, isn't it? It's a little bit suspicious. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not often that the president gives you $5 billion before you have any results. And the moment you give the company $5 billion before you have results, you're going to spin the results. And that's what we see with this administration. It's just terrible. Paxlovid is like the adjahelm of COVID. It's a useless drug product that's being marketed heavily. Yeah, and I think it could be studied. I mean, if it, I mean... I, it, to me, I'm 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 just thinking, you know, it's cardiovascular disease. When you study that, you got to study people for two to five years. But yes. SARS-CoV-2, you only have to study them for what twenty to thirty days. I mean, these studies could be so easy to be done if they were, if we had a culture of randomization. And you know, for me, I totally agree with you. And I also want to point out that so many of the people who say you can't do randomized studies, they're people who just like to do observational studies. Don't they have like a professional bias? That the person who works in the causal inference observational group at blah 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 is always telling you, well, we can't do randomized studies. It's like, yeah, because you're in the business of not doing it. That's why you keep saying it. But history will show you're wrong. Ultimately, you think if you go back to the 1940s and you pluck a doctor and bring him to the today, they'd be like, wow, I can't believe you're randomized people who are on Coumadin to DOAC. That's crazy. Um, you know, you just don't see the future. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I think we've right. I think we've, we've covered it, and I I I agree with you. I'm asking you questions because I I'm trying to trying to bring out these uh, these counter arguments to, well, to your Mike, arguments. Michael Putman wants to be on the show, and we're going to bring him on. I think we should bring him. We'll talk to Adam, but we should bring Michael on because he wants to be devil's advocate, so he can get himself roasted every day. <laughs> but he's a, he's a, he's a good talker. I mean, he's good. I like him. Yeah. So. Excellent. Closing thoughts, closing thoughts are, yeah, the cardiogenic shock example is a great example. 50% of people die with cardiogenic shock and acute MI. Doesn't it make sense to put them on ECMO? The answer is no. And similarly, 7 million people died of COVID-19. Maybe actually that number might be a little bit off because with and from is, uh, you know, put that aside. But COVID-19 did kill people. But it doesn't mean what we did was useful. We literally took basketball rims off the hoop, okay, right near where I live. I'm pretty sure that didn't change that number. It wasn't going to be 7.1 million and now seven because they took the basketball hoops off. It was going to be seven either way. So we have to ask ourselves, just because something bad is happening doesn't mean you get to act like a lunatic. Masking toddlers, I think you're a lunatic. I think you're really crazy. Testing kids in 2023, again, I think you're totally crazy. And the UK government agrees with me and they tell their citizens don't test and most of Europe agrees with me. These people on Twitter who disagree with me they have proven themselves to be absolutely incapable of policy. I mean, they said keep schools closed. They said mask toddlers. They were wrong about everything. So I'm glad they disagree with me. It tells me I'm probably right. And the real reason they disagree with me is my post is so popular. My post got like, you know, 100,000 views and 200,000 video watches. I mean, it's just crushing them. So they can make their own video called Why You Need to Test Toddlers for 25 Years. They also have no end date in their own philosophy. And their video will be watched by four or five people. So let them try. Good luck to them.
my, my closing thoughts are that, I mean, I think the lessons from ECLS shock and I think the lessons from frail AF are that even when things are really bad, that's even more reason to randomize patients because if you don't randomize, you'll end up doing stuff that's harmful. And I think in the end, you'll spend more money and cause more harm if, if you don't randomize. And, and the way we do trials, we can have interim looks and we can, if it's going the wrong way, we can stop it. And I just, I just wish we had a culture of, of humility and a culture of um, curiousness and wanting to study things in the proper way. Well said. You've been listening to Sensible Medicine Podcast. Go to sensiblemedicine.substack.com and subscribe. I'm also going to maybe put this out on Plenary Session Podcast because I haven't done some oncology reviews in a while. Um, John's available on his own Substack called Stop and Think. He had a great one about testing this weekend. I'm on Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts. We'll be back next week with Adam Sifu. And uh, if you like this podcast, leave us a review. Send us a note. All right, until next time. All right, that was good.